Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master ChatGPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution. Lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash AI workshop. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris for Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. I think we all understand as product people that we've got to build up trust with our partners, right? We're product and product marketing managers, not dictators. Everything we do is based on being able to partner and influence those around us. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, one of the groups that we struggle with when we're new to a company, and sometimes even when we've been there a long, long time, (laughs) is sales, right? But it's one of the groups that is so critical that we do have trust and partnership with. Because look, the most successful product we ever manage at the end of the day is going to be defined by how much revenue it brings in, how much it's sold. There's no other definition that's going to make sense. This partnership is critical. So we are going to dive in today. And what's great about it is to help us with the topic is someone who has deep experience and credibility on both sides of the sales and product marketing aisle, right? He's been both, he understands it, and he's made it his career and his passion to help bridge that trust. So today we are welcoming Brady Jensen, a very versatile professional, like I mentioned, who's been in tech sales, product marketing, and an entrepreneur. Notably, he was named Inside Sales Rep of the Year at Jive Software, which shows sort of his sales talent. But his passion for product marketing was always constant. And his career journey unveiled this glaring issue that we're going to talk about, right? That trust deficit between sales and marketing teams and stemming from what he sees as a misalignment with external market realities, which is great, right? What we're talking about is how we're going to bridge this is by understanding the market. And I think it's also what differentiates us in our career is that real market understanding and what can sort of differentiate our products. So Brady founded Aggregate Insights in 2018 with this mission to solve this problem. And today he's going to talk us through sort of his philosophy and his approach. And we're super excited. So welcome, Brady. Well, thank you very much for having me, Rebecca. It's good to be here. Excellent. So I already gave a little bit of this, but one of the things I like to start with is kind of asking people their origin story, right? How did you get to be so passionate about this topic? What was the pain or opportunity that you saw in your own career? Yeah. So very early in my career, I changed from being a cowboy in Idaho growing up on a cattle ranch to being a salesperson. And I was in a sales role first at AT AT&T with 300,000 other folks who worked (laughs) there with me and eventually made my way into tech sales where I was successful. I think a lot of product marketers maybe don't have that background or some of them may have felt like sales wasn't a great fit for them. In fact, Mm -hmm. I felt sales was a great fit for me. What I was looking for is I wanted to be able to augment what I could do for a company beyond just what one sales rep could do out in market. So I made a transition uh, a number of years into my career into product marketing. And the first role that I had was competitive intelligence role within product mm. marketing. 
So very early on, I was tasked with paying attention to what was going on outside of the four walls of the building, so to speak. And that's where I cut my teeth. And as I progressed in my product marketing career, it gave me a lot of opportunities to see what I thought worked very well and what I thought wasn't working as well. And one of the things that I had found frustrating is I would see a lot of assumptions and a lot of guesses be made in how product marketing would put together a go-to-market for sales. Mm -hmm. Differentiators defined in an afternoon in a boardroom somewhere, right? Or a pitch deck that was never really exposed to buyers in market Mm. to understand whether or not they felt like it spoke to them, whether or not it made sales feel like that person knew them. And it was a frustration for me. And I ha- it happened at a, bun- a number of different companies, both pre-IPO companies, post-IPO companies, large and small. And so when I decided to go out on my own and hang my own shingle, that's where I wanted to focus. I had the good experience with sales. I had the good experience in product marketing. But what I always knew is there was this sales enablement component that I felt was missing which was this trust and credibility that can only be brought to the table by a product marketer if they bring their receipts and they show Mm. the work that they do and they show the uh, types of people they're having conversations with. I will say in, you know, sales kickoffs, if a product marketer can get in front of sales at a sales kickoff and tell them, we want you to pitch this new thing. We want you to speak in this way. We're going to certify you on it, right? And that's it. Then your sales colleagues are going to wonder, where did this come from? Is it right? My way I'm pitching right now works pretty well for me. But if you go in front of those guys, I don't care, and gals, no matter how hungover they are from the night before, and you tell them, I spoke to 20 buyers in market, here's who they are. This is what they told me. This is how they want to be sold to. This is the ideal way they want to buy. This is the way they speak. This is what gets deals done. And all of a sudden, you're the most interesting speaker at the event. Hmm. I love that idea, as you put it, of showing receipts, right? Because, you know, we talk about product being sort of the central hub where all of the voice of the market and the voice of the customer comes in. But, you know, sales talks to customers and potential customers and evaluators on a regular basis, right? So you need to also show that you're talking to the market, to those that they want to have as customers, to those, right, that you have enough of those. Otherwise, why are they going to think what you're saying, to your point, is working better than than what they've already done? There's a, a definite trust piece there. I think that's absolutely true. They do speak to the market. What they don't love to do is speak to the market with a new message that no one's tried mm-hmm. before. Right. Uh, I like to call yeah. it sort of the, the test pilot approach. Right. <laughs> you build the plane as the product marketer and then you say, go fly this thing and let me know if it stays in the air. And if it doesn't stay in the air, we'll we'll go back to square one and we'll try to build something that's different based on your feedback. Sales rep needs to close his quota. Sales leadership are responsible for top line revenue and potentially renewals as well. The last thing they want to do is introduce risk into their line of business because we are offloading the responsibility of testing this stuff and validating it to them in real life sales situations with huge consequences if we're wrong. That's super interesting, right? Because I do think a lot of us think, okay, so I did the research. I talked to a bunch of people. So based on that, this is a way, you know, it wasn't a guess. It's a pretty solid piece that I, this will work. 
but often we leave it there. And when the sales team tries it and it fails, let's not like, let's not kid ourselves. There's also a lot of finger pointing in that spot. Well, maybe they didn't deliver, right? Maybe they didn't do this. Maybe they were talking at the wrong time or they didn't, you know, there's, there's again, not trust. So how as a product marketer, can we test the message and test the approach not being salespeople, but before we give it to the sales team? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective and where I may take a bit of a contrarian view, I think that speaking to customers in a lot of contexts is very important for a product marketer. I don't believe this is the right context. And I'll tell you why. If you are going to develop a new pitch, if you're going to go out and try to appeal to your next customer, chances are going and talking to your best customer who purchased you three to four years ago, five Mm -hmm. years ago, however many years ago it was, they don't look anything like each other. You're talking to an early adopter that wants to blow up the world, change the world, put a dent in the universe, cause a revolution. But there are so few early adopters. That's why you can't just stick there forever. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, they're telling you, this is what you should tell your buyers. And they're giving you bad advice. It's not because they want to give you bad advice. It's because they're going to give you what attracted them to you. Mm -hmm. Another risk I, I believe is absolutely there is you talk to your best customer who by very definition is an outlier. For every two, three best customers a company has, there's this medium middle of many, many more who don't look or feel like those customers. So you can't say, well, we, you know, 90% of our revenue is from mid-market, but our best customer. So we go and talk to Boeing and we go talk to Delta and we go talk to these big companies and you get these signals that are noise, right? You Mm -hmm. think they're signals but really you're getting some feedback that works really well for those people who look very important to the company Mm. are maybe your best promoters in market, but they don't fit the exact profile of that person you need to sell to this year. Yeah, that's a really good point. We talk about the difference between customer feedback and market feedback. It's easier to talk to your customers, but they are, to your point, not representative of your next customers and can be a very dangerous place to test items. So with that in mind, which I think is 100% correct, and I think it's something people forget because, again, they're also easier to get to, (laughs) let's be honest, right? (laughs) So I go out and I... So, well, talk me through this, right? So we're out there, we're talking to different people in the market, we're understanding their perspectives. During those calls, do you test out market messages then? Do you get feedback on there? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biggest trick here is securing time to do this work, right? As yep. a product marketer, yep. your time is limited. You're constantly pulled towards the tactical mm-hmm. and pull yourself back into the strategic is always a tough thing to do. And then you have to go recruit these people to have a conversation with. That's part of the reason why my organization exists is to take some of this load because we know it's so hard and it's really not something that a most product organizations have an in-house, you know, team of people who know how to do this day in and day out. Doesn't mean it can't be done internally. I've done it internally. I would recommend doing it internally, partner or not. But it takes a mindset that I think is lacking in a lot of organizations, which is you think you're a product marketer. And when you do this type of work, you have to become a salesperson, right? Not just Mm -hmm. in the fact that you're going to go test the message with sales in mind, but you got to go pitch these people in market 
to have a conversation with you Mm -hmm. to even kick this thing off. And the worst thing you can do is rely on proxies or rely on people who are kind of close to your ICP or kind of close to the title, Mm. but really the only people you could get to respond to you was a, you know, a director, but really the SVP is the person making the decision, right? So it takes a lot of tenacity. It takes some budget, frankly, to make sure that you can do this right. And once you have these people in conversation, there are a number of things that I think are most, well, there are a number of things that I think are very important to have in your bag when it comes to having these conversations Mm -hmm. and, and the types of information you can gather. First of all, personas that are not built after talking directly with buyers are fiction. Yes, right? they're a lovely character study. <laughs> they're a lovely character study and so-and-so's a soccer mom. She's 54. She drives a Volvo, right? Like that might be great for consumer, horrible for B2B. You don't yeah. have any idea what makes them tick, what they care about, how they want to be sold to, all that stuff. So persona is one of the upfront things that we always work to develop when we're having these conversations with buyers. It's sort of foundational to be able to do any of the other stuff. The other thing that we always recommend testing directly with buyers is differentiation. Mm. It's easy to say we're differentiated in these five ways because this is what we're most proud of, or this Mm. is what we're best at, right? I hate to break it to people, but Oftentimes, what you're best at or what you're most proud of is not what the buyer values the most. Mm. And you don't know that, right? So you can go and say, buy our product. Here's the three awesome things we do. But if you haven't actually validated the value of that specific component with buyers in market, you're making a mistake, in my opinion. When we do this work, we also help our clients understand not just what are the available options that are possibilities for differentiators, we run them through a clear litmus test to help them understand, Mm -hmm. is it unique? Doesn't mean nobody else is doing it, but it better be in a unique way. Yep. Is it durable over time? Does it have a moat around it to, you know, paraphrase Warren Buffett? Can you prove it with metrics that your buyer will accept as valid? Doesn't mean, you know, if you're selling to a highly technical audience, they're going to need a whole different set of proof Mm. than someone who's non-technical audience when it comes to that. But it has to be something your buyer can latch onto and say, I believe in this proof that you're providing. The last one, though, is the question of value. And the buyer is the only one who can tell you this. Yep. So talking to them, we help our clients understand not just how did the things that made it through the first three gates do. And so you have a stack ranking of those. But we also take into consideration other market differentiators that are out in market Hmm. because your three best ones might be your three best ones, but you find out that you have a competitor who's outperforming differentiators and they value their the two they're talking about way more. But what we all often find is maybe they're talking about two. You didn't even know one of them was valuable to the buyer. And oh, by the way, you're actually better than them at it, right? But you, you've you've seeded ground, you've let, allowed them to run with this differentiation that is not even theirs to own, right? The question is, is it truly unique? But most people don't run it through a clear process to get to differentiators. So they may be latching onto something that the market loves, but they have no mode around. And mm-hmm. you could take that position if you chose to. So... Those to me are very foundational as far as like 
nailing those being super important up front. Now, I do think there is a back-end component of this too, where after you've developed your narrative, after you've developed the content based on what you know about the buyer and what they care about, getting out there and testing, you know, getting out there and testing, there are quick ways to do this. Somebody who comes to mind, winter is an option for something like this, where they can get it in front of people for feedback very quickly, asynchronously even. Mm. So there's a lot of options to message test after you've done your testing to make sure that the strategic part is right to make those final tweaks so that you really nail it in the end. And then to your point, you also have validation of the messaging. It's not the sales team that's testing it, right? You've got yeah, you've, you've yeah. tested messages to them. Right. The thinking that sales, well, number one, conversations we have with CROs, they're oftentimes very shocked by the lack of rigor around that part. They mm-hmm. don't realize just how little has been done to validate the final product. But they have oftentimes had the experience where Q1, it's not working. You know, Q2, marketing takes it back and tries to mess around with it. And then Q3, you got a new message to go to market with. That one's still not really working. Now you're in Q4. Your buyer says, we'll talk to you after the holidays. You've blown a year. And it it all disappeared. A very cost-effective way to actually do this and to mitigate all of that risk of all of the missed opportunity during that time frame is where I think product marketing can make the case to leadership to take the time to do this instead of build me another one pager or a white paper yep. or whatever it may be. Give us the time to do this right the first time so that you, we don't have to have a question in anybody's mind. There is a single source of truth that what we built is based on the buyer and who they are. Therefore, there isn't a question. There isn't this like tension of, is it marketing's fault? Is it sales mm-hmm. fault? Whose fault is it, right? You have a single source of truth and it is the buyer. Then it takes a whole lot of the options off the table of what might be going wrong and allows you to hone in on any of those things that you can be doing in on the fly to make adjustments. Because granted, what we do, I think is very important. I think that the job is to get to that point, but that doesn't mean that you're off the hook for the rest of the year, right? Mm -hmm. Markets move fast. You still need to be having buyer conversations. You still need to be testing this stuff. You should be doing win-loss. You should be doing competitive work, all this stuff, because you are going to miss shifts if you're not doing this programmatically. But that first thing to go get over the hump from a product marketer perspective, if I'm a leader saying, I need to get my... CMO, CRO, whoever to buy into the fact that we got to do this right once to be able to do it right in the future. It's all about the risk of doing nothing, which is more than just the cost of your headcount of sales, because that in and of itself is huge. Yep. But then you think about the missed, you know, opportunity when you've burned these sales opportunities to the ground. Because you because you tested stuff on them that you didn't know if it was going to work or not. Yeah. We work a lot in health tech. So I even think in terms of like drug trials, you don't just like release it to the masses, right? And hope right. for the... You, <laughs> no. have, you have to mitigate all that risk by making sure that you do the upfront work. It's interesting too, because I think often when product marketing is trying to make the case, like, hey, I need some resources or I need some space from the, the tactical stuff or or whatever, you know, there's a speed question, like this is going to slow us down. But I think to your point, the speed to write is faster. The speed out the door may seem slower, but it's going to be correct significantly faster if we do this. And 
there's also alignment. Everybody knows that this is the process that went through. Right. And the thing is, it does take time, but it's time very, very well spent. I think it's, yep. the, it's the least costly way <laughs> to actually accomplish it if you're doing it right. And you're also, as a marketer, you know, sales enablement as a practice is very important. But I think sales enablement as a practice without this credibility means that you're always going to be fighting the question of who's right, whose opinion matters more here. And, you know, I, I hear it from CROs and CMOs. They'll talk to us and they'll say, I'm 12 months in at 18 months. If I'm not successful, I'm out the door. Right. Yep. (laughs) They all have very short leashes in these roles. Yeah. Right. And, And to them, they'll come to us and say, I don't know who's what's wrong here. Right. I had a $400 million run rate startup, if you can still call them that, <laughs> tell me that their the CRO said, I have 500 reps around here and I have, I don't know what to tell them to do <laughs> right? mm. because the insight's not there. It's yep. not clear. It's not coming from product marketing, product marketing. It's an interesting thing for us because I initially thought, well, product marketers are going to be the people who want to work with us. That is true, but in most cases, it's actually the revenue folks. And then the product marketers, we become their best friends because they realize that, oh, we've been doing all this stuff in the dark and you turned on the light. And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden we can see the same thing with demand gen marketers, right? Like they're the ones that come back and say, I never had confidence in what we were putting out because I didn't know whether or not we'd validated this stuff. And all of a sudden they're like, it's an indispensable for them. So from a, from a, how do you make product marketing, not just an organization that's constantly trying to define who they are to the organization. If you become like the truth teller, the, the honest broker, the person that's going to come in. And if anybody says, what does the market think? You got the right answer to it. It's a quick trip to like being invited to all the C-level meetings and, and being super involved. And for any product marketer that says, I want to become the CMO, right? Like mm-hmm. I guess a way to like marry the strategy that puts you, that everyone sort of believes is product marketing's responsibility, but bringing that strength to such a degree that all of a sudden you're, you're a contender instead of, you know, so many times when I see CMOs coming up the ranks through PR or demand gen or other areas. And a product marketer who does this right is indispensable. I'll tell you a, a personal aside. I started this company. I'd been thinking about it for a long time, but I only started it after I was laid off. Mm-hmm. And the layoff was crushing. I didn't, it was disorienting. I wasn't really sure what to think about it. Well, the CEO called me 18 hours after and said, I didn't know that this was going to happen, but you are the only person I trust to tell me what's true about our market. Mm-hmm. And he said, come back. And I said, I'm not coming back. Yeah. It's <laughs> emotional okay. 18 hours. I am not right. coming. Yeah. Right. And, and he said, well, will you, will you consult for us? And that's what I did. They're still a client five years later, specifically because it's an indispensable skill yeah. to be able to translate what the market is and what the market cares about to people internally, because it allows them to actually execute on things that they couldn't otherwise, or they're executing and constantly looking over their shoulder, thinking maybe they were wrong. So, I mean, to me, that was a great testament of the fact that Mm -hmm. that I was trying to do when I was sort of carving out my own product marketing role, because it wasn't super well defined, but I was really trying to tackle win-loss competitive differentiation, all this stuff for the CEO at a public company to be like, 
you're the guy. Like I need mm-hmm. you back <laughs> because yeah. because uh, there's nowhere else you could go. And that the, there was a strategy organization. There was a uh, you know there was corp dev. There were all these other places where he could have said, well, that's where the truth is. But the information about what was true about the market and the go to market was didn't reside there. Mm-hmm. It resided in the product marketing organization. Well, and I mean, I think what we teach and what we hope is that it does live in product marketing. And I know there are people listening who are like, this is great. This is what I keep telling the organization we need. I can't, and to your point, I can't get the bandwidth. I can't get the time. I can't get the resources. And that's a hundred percent true. Right. But I also think one of the things about bringing a third party in when it's an option is it can feel a little bit like you're abdicating your role. But I think what you're really doing is giving them a fast demonstration of the power that you're talking about. Right. And once they see that and see the value as well, right, it's not one and done, but you've demonstrated the impact in that. And then you carry the torch forward with a whole lot more ability to push back or to get additional resources on some of the tactical stuff because they've seen the impact of that. Right. Is that perfect? Do you wish they all would believe us? Yes, we all wish they would just (laughs) believe us and grant us the resources. But I've seen this work. I've seen this work in this kind of function. I've seen it work in a CX function where sometimes you just have to let someone else demonstrate in a faster time than you can do on the side with everything else and be able to see the impact. I would definitely agree with that. There are some workloads that tend to work well when there is a partner who has third-party credentials and some arm's Mm -hmm. length them and those workloads we have a lot of customers that will have us programmatically support them mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. but whether or not you want to consider it a long-term marriage or not absolutely true that showing this value in a quick way is a very effective way of going about doing this i would say even if you can't get budget be a little subversive right like mm-hmm. figure out how to like create your own 20 percent time Yep. I actually became a product marketer, as I said, having done sales the year that I was inside sales rep of the year was the year I left product marketing and it was, they didn't want me to go. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, what I had been doing alongside this is in our own intranet, I had been researching and publishing information about our competitors and my point of view about what was going on in the market. So the transition was very simple and the CRO even paid for my position in product marketing because he said, I will let you go there, but you have to focus on the market. Mm -hmm. We're not focusing on the market. I don't know what is true. You can go over there, but you got to focus on the market. All of that really because I was probably spending 10% of my time in the evenings Mm. trying to figure out what was going on in our market. Right. You weren't getting it somewhere else. Yep. We were a company that IPO'd and immediately had Microsoft, Salesforce, SAP, Atlassian, everyone and their dog was in this market. And it was very, it was very confusing to figure out what was true. So I took it upon myself to say, well, I, I'm selling this stuff. I want to know what's true. And then I started publishing it. All of a sudden, like people were like, yeah, we actually need that thing. So even if you're a product marketer, you're like, how do I make my mark? If there's one of these things that's not being done that you think you can take a swing at, it's a very quick way to gain positive attention for the product marketing organization and for yourself as more than a partner for sort of inbound requests for mm-hmm. 
for collateral and sales materials and all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Just one of the things I just want to go back on that you talked about early on was recruiting and just how difficult it is. It can feel overwhelming to try to recruit people to talk to you that are out in the market. Yep. And I know that that's something you guys do. But what if you were, if you've got someone on the line, they're listening and they're like, hey, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. I want to do like five interviews this next month or quarter. What would be some advice you would give them to mm-hmm. really help them in that recruiting process? Because I know, because I hear it from our listeners that like, this is tough. How do I find them? How do I get them? I would say that is normally the point at which people who are really excited about trying to do this stuff drop out of doing mm-hmm. this stuff. Because they re- all of a sudden they're like, they don't have the muscle memory of a salesperson who's used to going outbound and promoting something. We actually use Apollo, which is a sales tool to create email sequences mm. slash LinkedIn touches slash phone calls, right? And it's very much a sale. It's a selling approach, right? Mm-hmm. Like we'll touch someone eight, nine, 10 times before we say, you know what, they're not interested, right? But if you don't put that kind of effort in, you have to really think about the fact that any any outbound message of yours asking for this type of assistance is included with the messages of hundreds of sales reps that are trying to sell something, right? Mm-hmm. It's not even just the problem of like someone might think I'm selling something. It's the fact that they're barraged with this information and they start quick triaging and just dumping things off their plate. So if you give up after one or two tries, chances are nobody's going to respond and you're going to you're going to think, well, this is a failed experiment. Let's all go home. The other area that I would say that, you know, works particularly well, at least to jumpstart this, we don't tend to do this in the long term. But if you need to talk to some buyers that aren't your best customer, the best thing to me is to go to the most recent prospects. Right. So win loss. Mm. Win-loss is an easy way. Like to me, the big win in win-loss literally is over years of doing it and being able to like see around corners because you're doing it all the time. But that first win-loss process of just talking to people, the amount of things that you will learn that Mm -hmm. seem like they should be obvious to the organization is huge. And so that is another maybe shortcut if you're like, I got, you know, I don't have time to even go through this, but I need to talk to someone. Your wins and your losses are the ones that were most recently not your customer and a bunch of them still aren't your customer. Mm -hmm, The the losses are going to be harder to recruit, but those fresh wins, make your case with implementation, make your case with customer success. You need to talk to them not in six months after they're implemented because we're scared of marketing ever talking to a customer. You got to have a good what's in it for me If you go and talk to my customer now, which is about, to me, it's about having an interview that focuses on the stuff we need, but also has some good questions in there about what do we need to do to secure you as a long-term customer, right? What does implement, what does good implementation look like to you? How will you measure your success with this product, which more than half the time is totally different than what they say in the sales cycle, right? Yeah. So gathering some information that's a good what's in it for customer success, implementation teams, those folks that are very protective of these types of situations will open some doors and allow you to have conversations with someone who very recently touched other vendors in the market. They know what they're talking about. They've seen you, but they're probably the most virgin soil you can go to that isn't sort of a customer that doesn't look like 
who you want to sell to next because they're fresh blood, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And and to your point, they are more familiar with you. They are definitely an easier recruit. Doesn't mean right. it's always simple, but it's easier. Yeah. One other thing I want to touch on in case everyone listening is just not convinced yet, Brady, which is crazy. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that we all have heard about a ton in the last 13 months, right, is AI and the number of companies we see using generative AI to make personas or to do validation and what they think of as discovery through there right. is, is not small. But talk to me about, I know you have a very strong opinion about this and, and how we can differentiate from that. Because one of the things is with AI, everybody can do that. So you're okay. not differentiating yourself. But talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I we have a lot of clients who are AI, ML companies. I think they're, it's a tremendous tool for a lot mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. What I don't think it is doing is if you think that you're going to get the leg up on anyone else in your market by asking AI to summarize what's known in the world already, you're not, right? Everyone's going to have those same searches. In my perspective, the way that this creates value is by learning things that don't exist anywhere else, right? Like there is known information and AI is really good at taking that and trying to figure out and you can use it to help you understand basic things. Now, AI, frankly, still isn't good enough that I would really trust everything that's popping out of there. They have sort of their lucid dreams, right? (laughs) Or they hallucinate, I think people will say. But even five years down the road, let's say that AI has just nailed it, right? First of all, AI is going to start referencing its own works eventually. And I think that is a scary, scary thing to even be thinking about is like soon enough, like AI is creating the content that they're also referencing and it becomes copies of copies of copies. But the truth in my perspective is you're not going to win based on what is easily known by anyone who has chat GPT for, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone can do the searches. Yes, you can be a prompt engineer or whatever, right? And you might be able to get some slight advantage there. But that's like saying, well, we don't need to do primary research because we're really good at Google searches, right? Right. You you probably can get some advantage there, right? Like learn Boolean search. You can probably figure out more than your average person. But if you're competing with competent people in your market, they're going to very quickly adopt anything that works. And it becomes a game of can we do hard things, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and the barrier to doing this stuff is that it's a hard thing, especially for a marketer who hasn't been a salesperson that feels a little uncomfortable doing outreach and cold calling a buyer for heaven's sake, right? Like it's not a comfortable feeling for most people and uh, marketers aren't quota carrying sales people for a reason in many cases. So, you know, don the persona of that person who's, who's a seller and pitch the reason why they should talk to you. And man, if you can, our clients, we can make them look extremely good when they're like, our buyer is is a chief procurement officer of durable goods that are made in overseas markets because we sell this software that helps validate the supply chain and make sure child labor is not in it, which is true. Like that's a customer Mm -hmm. like chat GPT can't tell you anything about that. Right. Chat GPT may eventually get good enough that it will be able to spit out a pretty good composite sketch of the VP of IT. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe the V or maybe the CHRO or something like that. But 
in your market, in your context, with the thing you're selling, all of a sudden you're like so many layers deeper that it's not going to be able to dig into the psyche of these people. And that's really the goal of all of these conversations is to allow you to peer into their soul in a way, right? Like Mm -hmm. not about the obvious answers. And I train my folks all the time, like the obvious answer, the easy answer to the question is almost always not right. And if it is right, it's not clarified, right? You got to clarify it, clarify it, clarify it down to the point where you now have a nugget that you can feed into what you do and be successful. So AI, I think is awesome. I think it will level the playing field, I guess, in a way that makes everyone sort of marginally better understanding of who their buyer is. But then you got to look for what's the next big thing that's going to allow me to take that to 11. And it's not going to be more AI. It's going to be first party data mm-hmm. that you get to keep <laughs> and you get to hoard for yourself and that you get to say, well, I know this and the whole world may know this, but do they know this? And they don't yeah. because you're not feeding your information into some large language model that's going to get back to your competitor. So the advantages are going to come from that work that is hard to do, but allows you to get insightful first party stuff that nobody else can can have. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, there's a ton of useful things to do with ChatGPT. I'm, I'm certainly not uh, sure. bashing it. But I think if anything, it makes this kind of firsthand research more important because it has made the baseline extremely more accessible. Right. right. And so, you know, if you're good with just sort of the general information that's not differentiated, that everybody else has access to, great. But if you're looking for the thing that's just coming in, right? ChatGPT gives you back the most common, the most probable, right? But you need to go for the next piece. If anything, it makes this this rush for this kind of information like even more important and even a bigger advantage to your organization. Yeah, I feel like if you're okay saying, I want to be the product marketing equivalent of the sales rep who hits 70% of quota, that's chat GPT, go for it, right? But mm-hmm. if you want to be the guy that ever, or gal or whatever, who, whose people say, well, how do they do it? <laughs> like, There's always like this magic thing with the sellers that kill it. And it's because they do find things in the minutia that they can like really, really execute on that is very hard for other people to do, right? And I think the same way mm-hmm. here, like, yeah, you can get to a baseline where you're you're an average performer, but if you want to, like, come up with the non-obvious insight, which is always our goal with me and my team, I'm like, we don't come back to our clients and tell them what they said, right? That's not mm-hmm. the goal. <laughs> the goal is to tell them the non-obvious insights when you can pull a bunch of data points together and figure out some pathway that just didn't exist until you combine these things in a certain way. Right. And Mm -hmm. that, I don't think AI is going to get there anytime soon where it's going to be able to be that, that effective. And and even, even when it is, I mean, if, and when we get there, who knows what we'll be talking about, but for today and in the foreseeable future, to me, that first party research that isn't focused on research for like, here's a charts and graphs and leave that to the like deal teams, M&A, whatever, like for our work, it's research with a small R where really it's all about, it's not the research, it's the insight. It's the non-obvious insight 
that nobody else has that's going to propel you, not just sort of a list of here's the, we did a a live survey and here's what they told us on a scale of one to five, for instance, which I see sometimes people think that is the same thing. And it's not. It's about the winding road to getting to an insight, which takes a whole lot more brain power and a whole lot more thoughtfulness. But when you can do it and you can do it well, especially in the context of a lot of product marketing teams that aren't doing it yet or aren't doing it very well yet, you can set your, yourself apart and win a whole lot more deals. Sales is going to love you. And I I got invited to sales club one year because of this specific reason, right? They're like, you bring us the insights. And man, I think love I'd love to see all product marketers getting, you know, voted into going to sales club because they're the one ear that the sales team goes to when they want to strategize about how to get a deal done. What a wonderful demonstration of the sort of credibility and alignment and trust that we're talking about too. Right. All right, Brady, we talked about a lots of different stuff today. If you were going to have our listeners do two things differently tomorrow, based on what we talked about today, what would that be? Two things. I think that the first would be start now, hmm. right? It's very easy. You know, you think about the pragmatic framework and so many other frameworks that have a lot of boxes that are sort of associated with this work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of teams can look at it and be like, we can't get there, right? Like that, we're not doing any of those things very well yet. But think about how can you do how can you do something tomorrow that allows you more credibility, portable credibility that you can be the data point instead of one of many data points in a conversation. The second thing that I would say to do is frankly, just inventory your own organization's risk by not doing this. Mm-hmm. Because to do it, you can get this, you can get start, but if to do it right and to really glean everything you can from this type of work, it's going to have to become a part of what you are as an organization. And if you can't convince those that hold the big budgets that this is important, and you know, for us, for instance, we sell to CROs, sometimes CMOs. It's not a deal that doesn't get done where the CFO isn't reviewing it and weighing in with their own opinion whether or not it's going to go through. Mm-hmm. So the same thing internally, like if you need budget for this, it's not just you can always tell people about the bright future. And I think that's important. But the sort of underlying under the surface risk to companies by not doing this work and thinking about, and I, we will oftentimes outline this for people. How many sales reps do you have? What is their base salary cost to the company? What is the cost of if you were to win 30% of deals next year versus 20% of deals next year, right? All of a sudden the numbers get high and people start sweating a little bit and saying, we can buy insurance by, (laughs) by using product marketing's suggestion to make this so. And frankly, in a world that we live in now where money's not free and people are trying to hit profitability, we have clients that have done 10 points plus better in win Mm -hmm. rates after doing work with us, or they're now winning twice as many contested deals Mm -hmm. compared to what they used to before. So, you know, those are the two things from my perspective is do something small tomorrow, because if you don't get going, it's going to get backburnered like it has for a very long time. And number two, build your case. And you can build your case in by showing the cost of doing nothing, but also be a little subversive. It might well it's not even subversive, honestly. It's do something outside your current job description where you can bring some data 
that is irrefutable and you can say, this is what the buyer told us. It doesn't match what we're doing now. This is a problem. And that's how I think you can get the right mindset around starting, but also resources to get the ball rolling and within the organization. Excellent. Excellent advice, Brady. Excellent conversation. If people listening want to follow more of what you're what you're talking about, get more of your insights, what is the best way for them to find you? You can find us at aggregateinsights.com. You could also go to aggregateinsights.com forward slash podcast. We do have some content on the podcast site that might be interesting to your listeners. We don't think anything of what we do is secret. It's hard, but it's not a secret. So we try to open source in a way a lot of the methods that we use. So there is a guide on there that walks you through the exact way that we go about doing win-loss. Everything from the recruiting to incentives to how to put together a good interview guide, all those sorts of things. But yeah, our goal is to really not try to say, well, it's secret what we do. It's very much not secret. People can do it. Eventually, they may come engage with us. But even Mm -hmm. if they don't, our goal is to educate people on how to do this and make it so that more companies are actually focused on this thing that somehow is seen as novel in a lot of places, which Mm -hmm. still shocks me because it's been on Pragmatic's board in a number of spots for as long as I can remember. Right. Um, And yet you say something to an audience about, you know, test your pitch with a buyer before you give it to sales. And people are like, wow. Oh, mind blown. Yeah. Thought of that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, point being like, reach out to us. There are oftentimes earlier stage companies that maybe aren't a great fit for us even. I will talk your ear off and give tell you exactly how to do it. In fact, early, early stage, I'm convinced the same stuff we're talking about now is the stuff that makes early stage companies successful because the founders are doing this stuff that doesn't scale. Mm-hmm. They're validating their market. All the stuff is extremely similar. What happens is they become people managers. Product yeah. marketing may take it over, but not to the extent that they were. It's time to get back to that where the same thing that got validated that got the company off the ground becomes a continuous validation process. And and product marketing is the perfect place to do it. It's just getting the wherewithal and the commitment of the organization to buy into it and and help you uh, do it for them. Love it. Yes. So aggregateinsights.com slash podcast. Yep. Perfect. All right. Lots of good tools there. Thank you very much, Brady. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.